What a, what a glorious hymn. I think it's a little taste of, uh, of heaven. As I've said before, I counted such a privilege to join in with praise. Some hymns just seem to just lift the spirit and the joy within. They're all objects of worship and praise. That really was glorious. I'm uh, privileged to join in with you as we sing that praise. You, you know, we've undertaken here on a regular basis to cover some of the basic doctrines. And this one's been touched on already. Uh, but I think it bears uh, looking at on a fairly regular basis. It really is one of the foundational things for coming uh, to God being reconciled to him through his son. Uh, it's also important in our daily life. And it is such a subject of controversy, or is that controversy? We seem to fight about any, we can fight about how to pronounce words even. What's more important is what they mean. This morning we're going to look at repentance. We're going to uh, see what the Bible has to say about repentance, because whatever we might think about various words, the only thing that really matters is what does God mean about them? And of course, the New Testament's given to us primarily in Greek, which is a very precise language. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do trust in looking at a number of men who are and seeing what the, the words mean similarly for the Hebrew. But we know we've been given God's truth through his word. And this morning, we're going to look at repentance and try to come to an understanding, something that not only gives us theological truth, but gives us a mechanism for our daily lives and for reaching out to the lost. Uh, turn to 2 Samuel 12, because the first thing we're going to do is look at what real repentance is. We're given plenty of examples. While you're turning there, I'll just mention that we're going to look at a man after God's own heart, obviously David. And in the 11th chapter, we have the sad story of King David and his great sin against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And we'll see his greater sin is against God. And David knows it. And after David's adultery with Bathsheba and taken her as his wife after having her husband murdered, we might suppose that all is well with David, that he's gotten what he wanted. We'll see that's not the case. In 2 Samuel 12, we have Nathan sent by God to confront David and draw out of him what we'll come to see is true repentance. 2 Samuel 12, beginning with verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for this wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I have gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. We're going to turn to the Psalms, to Psalm 32 and portions perhaps of 38 and 51. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at David's response. We have by scripture here, that this was true repentance, and that Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. But in verse 14, this wickedness has given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And it's sort of, along, I think about 1 Corinthians 11 moments, that when we give others reason to blaspheme the name of the Lord, there is an... an an opportunity that we might be called home early because we have done that. Psalm 32, like I said earlier, we, we might have supposed that David was um, all was well when he had obtained what he desired, Bathsheba, as his wife. But in Psalm 32, we, we have this, this prayer of um, Repentance, and it really gives a description of the life of someone who is living in sin and yet knows the Lord. Psalm 32, beginning with verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David can say that because he knows both sides of the coin. You can only say that being true when you're in fellowship with God. Verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Stop and think about that a moment. Perhaps there was nine months or a little better between the time of his initial sin with Bathsheba and the birth of the child and the confrontation with Nathan. And he's been silent about this whole time so he can speak to what agony he was going through. All was not well with David. In his heart, he knew what he was missing, that fellowship with God. 
Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Kind of reminds you of the, the prodigal. I will confess to my father that I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. David then in verse 6 adjures us. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. The restored fellowship is sweet. Finishing with the last two verses, 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That's the reward for being restored to fellowship. Psalm 38, again it continues. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. He confesses his sin, and he, he describes his agony, and he lays it before the Lord. Over in verse 17, for I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me, for I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Closing out 21 and 22, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, of my salvation. He knows where he needs to go for restoration. Psalm 51, the one that we know, again, is adjoined to this, this great sin in the confrontation by the prophet Nathan. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Speaking here of original sin that we get from our father, Adam. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. It's not just our outward actions, but it's our, the thoughts and the, the yearnings of our heart. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Only God can do that. He's talking to God to 
clean him so that why? In verse 8, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He's asking for forgiveness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He knows that he cannot fight sin on his own. He's asking God to create the clean heart and a steadfast spirit. And he knows that it'll come if the Holy Spirit dwells upon him, giving him strength. We know we're slaves to sin, but we've been set free by the price which Christ has paid and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say, restore to me your salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. For a long time I struggled. I thought that in the Old Testament there was no eternal security. I, I really don't hold that position anymore, and I wouldn't get dogmatic or argue or fight with people. But here David is saying, restore to me the joy of your salvation. A sinning Christian is the most miserable person in the world. Sin is pleasurable for a season, and even a believer can enjoy a moment of sin, but it's not near as pleasurable as it is for the unsaved. And there is a loss of fellowship that David has been crying out his heart over here. He wants to be restored to that joy of salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. If we live in sin and we don't repent, we're set aside as unclean vessels, as Paul warns in 2 Timothy 2. Some vessels are honor, vessels of honor for public service, and others must be set aside. How often do we, do we see true men of God who fall in sin, sexual sin or money or whatever it is, and they're removed from public service, and they give the enemies of the Lord reason to blaspheme. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We have an action of sin by David. We have an accusation, a conviction, a response, a change, and a restoration to fellowship. That, brothers and sisters, is true repentance. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Not that he didn't sin. And there was great suffering that came about for the rest of his life because of this. Yet he was restored to the joy of his salvation. When Nathan reveals that David is the man, one of the words that David cries out, I have sinned. We might ask, is that all it takes for it to be true repentance, to admit your guilt? That's not what Scripture teaches. If you think about Pharaoh, Twice he said, I have sinned to Moses. And, and he was, really was admitting, I was wrong in this. But it's not true repentance. He had no desire to change. He just wanted the consequences to go away. Balaam's another one. He, by the skin of his teeth, he escaped the sword of the angel of the Lord. And he declared, I have sinned. And yet we see in his life, false repentance. We can think of Judas. Betraying the Lord. 
when he saw what was going to be the result of the suffering of Jesus, he repented. He said, I have sinned. I betrayed innocent blood. It wasn't true repentance either. We have to conclude that I have sinned or I admit my guilt. That's part of it, but that's not repentance. Let's look at another um, true repentance in Scripture in Luke 15. We get it right from the Lord Jesus. If anybody knows what repentance is, of course, it's going to be uh, our Savior. And of course, we're going to talk about the, the, the prodigal. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus speaking, he says, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. I mean, that's a shocking thing. He's asking for his inheritance before his father is dead. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went off on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's not expecting leniency. He, he knows what he's done is right. This is a sign of, of the proper feeling. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and, bring a ring on it and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. It's not mankind that's judging whether his repentance was true or not. Of course, in the picture, it's a father, but it's a, it's a picture of God. Well, when is repentance not repentance? We've already mentioned you know, Pharaoh, Balaam, and Judas. Let's look at another Old Testament example. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15. We'll look at Saul. While you're turning there, I'll mention, of course, in 1 Samuel 13 is his first great sin against Samuel and the Lord um, when Saul takes the, the priestly duties, which he's not permitted to do, and offers the sacrifice because Samuel hasn't arrived according to Saul's uh, timetable. He gives all kinds of you know, lousy excuses tries to dodge his responsibility. Samuel doesn't accept it and pronounces judgment. There's no regret, no repentance from Saul. All you get is silence. In 1 Samuel 15, again, we, we have this, again, an, uh, 
There's more evidence of Saul's continuing disobedience in his failure to slay all the Amalekites and all their livestock. And, and again, we're going to see Saul's going to do all he can to avoid taking responsibility in the text, alternately blaming the people or even claiming he was disobeying the Lord in order to bring sacrifice to the Lord. How lame of an excuse is that? It's only after repeated rebuke from Samuel that he, he even makes any admission of guilt and then only half-heartedly. Beginning with verse 24, we, we see Saul's response. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He's the king. They're supposed to listen to his voice, not the other way around. Not that he shouldn't have advisors in that. Kind of makes me think of those today who they should be leading the people in the word of the Lord and the truth, and yet they're telling the people what they want to hear because that brings in more people. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Saul considers it a small thing. Samuel's having nothing of that. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to, to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is a better than you. Also, the glory of the Lord of, of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Doesn't even call him his God. He calls him the Lord your God. So Samuel went back, followed Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. You wonder with the state of his heart how, how deep of worship it could have been. Look, Saul had regrets because of the consequences, but again, he never felt the shame for his action, and he had no drive to remain faithful and or obedient in the future. And those are hallmarks of a false repentance. You know, Samuel's going to rebuke Saul one more time, isn't he? It'll be after Samuel's death, in the day before Saul's death, when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and he wants to call up the spirit of, uh, of Samuel, but there comes Samuel himself. And what does he tell him? And this is interesting because it seems to indicate in Scripture, though Saul finished his life in disobedience and away from the Lord, what does Samuel tell him? Samuel tells Saul, tomorrow you and your sons will join me here. It's an interesting thought. The best course in our life is to be in the will of the Lord. Start of the race, middle of the race, and the finish of the race. And again, we're reminded that there is no doubt in the New Testament that we are, have this promise of eternal security because it is the promise of the Lord. He is not a man that he should change his mind or lie. And people ask, well, is repentance really necessary? And I found over the years in talking with people, it comes down to your definition of what repentance is. But just briefly, we'll, we'll see if repentance itself is necessary. In, in Luke chapter 3, we have John the Baptist beginning his ministry. And it, it talks about Luke chapter 3, the second half of the second verse. The word of the Lord came to John. 
So this is a prophet of God speaking. The son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sounds like it's pretty important. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. <laughs> Can't really ever see that word, therefore. I, I, I hear Vernon McGee. Therefore, when you see therefore, you ought to slow down and ask the question, what is therefore, therefore? He says, it's always what came before. The wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You know, praise God for men like Vernon McGee that verse by verse would go through and what a glorious ministry he's had and how it's continued long after his death. But John here says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The fruits aren't the repentance. They're evidence of a true repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. They're thinking lineage of the, the blood of Abraham coursing through my veins. I'm a shoe in no, he's going to talk. He says how the, the axe is already laid to the trees, and it's the, the, the works, the fruit, are evidence of the health of the tree, and a good tree won't be cut down. Jesus spoke about repentance at the beginning of his ministry. Um, Matthew 4, 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 12, he's, he's uh, rebuking those who don't believe, and he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at, with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In Mark chapter 1, again, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. He said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance in Luke 5. And that most forceful, perhaps, passages the ones in Luke 13. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose those 18s on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Sounds like repentance is required. Now all we have to do is figure out what does repentance mean? You know, there are no words, as the Hebrew scholars will tell us in the Old Testament, that mean the word repentance, but there's two words that certainly at times point to it. Uh, shub has a basic sense to turn, to turn back, to go back, or to return. And in the vast majority of its usage in the Old Testament, it's just a literal turning of somebody, one direction or another. It says that 1,056 times, only 203 have any religious context to them. 
in all but one of those passages, it's either Israel or God, either turning toward or away from one another. The only other time, or the, the passage we mentioned, as Jesus mentioned, was Nineveh. The other Hebrew word is Nacham, and it, it just means to sorrow. It's, it's much less frequent. There's, it's only in the Bible 108 times. But only three of those times does it talk about um, a man, a man being having repentance, or men having repentance. See it twice in Jeremiah. Um, in one of those is a prophecy that is sort of echoed in Zechariah 12, that one day Israel is going to repent, how they did not receive their Messiah. And the other one, interestingly enough, is Job. And you think about that. Job is a, an incredible picture of repentance. He's the one to... God says to Satan, have you considered my upright servant Job, blameless in his ways? And even when he's struck, we're told, and yet in all these things he did not sin. And then later, he did not sin with his words. Not saying he wasn't, didn't have sin, but his heart full of repentance, offering sacrifices even for his children. And yet at the end of that story, we're told, Job righteously repents. In the Old Testament, it's sort of a twofold view of, uh, of repentance. It's, it's turning away from something towards something else and feeling sorrow. And as, as we read, there are certainly wonderful examples that we can understand the concept. In the Greek, there's quite a number of words as I look, tried to look them all up. And, uh, but there's three primary ones that sort of give us the flavor. And the, the most common one we use is metanoia. Um, it's a feminine noun, meaning a change in the inner man. Now, that puzzles me how a feminine noun can describe the change in an inner man. I guess it has to be in the Greek. But we talk about it as a change of mind. Metanoio, um, it's, a, it's a verb. It means the action of changing the thought. It's afterthought. My previous thoughts are no longer worth holding on to, in essence. And the, the other one, metamelomai. And it's also a verb, and it means to be having a change of emotions. And I'm not really doing the words justice in that, but those are the ideas. And they really do fit together to describe an effective change within a person. The ultimate short answer to what true repentance would look like is that if it is fully effective repentance, it occurs when the one who is sinning and repenting turns from loving their sin. When we hate our sin, our deeds will change. What we want to do is share God's view of sin. That's when we truly begin to agree with him. And though we can't overcome sin before we're saved, we can at least see how it has brought righteous judgment into our lives and we can fear. I mean, that's what the Philippian jailer did, didn't he? He didn't need to repent when he cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't tell him to repent. Told him to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He had already repented. And that's the point. It brings you to this recognition, I need a Savior. When you're coming through the first repentance, the justification before God. You know, different things motivate different people. For some, it's fear. For some, it's this uh, promise of eternal reward. But whether it's fear or, or reward, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance because we're always going to receive undeserved favor. Whether he holds back something bad that we deserve 
or whether he showers us with something good that we don't deserve. If you're going to turn for something, you're going to turn towards something else. And of course, our desire is that we turn towards God. We're looking for improvement. You know, one of the best expressions of, uh, of it can be found in, uh, in a practical sense. We'll talk about earthly things for a moment. In the birth uh, of our children, you know, those little bundles of joy, objects of perfection. You know, there are those who believe that babies are born without sin. Completely perfect. Now, I'd say that logically, they must not have children to be even able to say that. But there are, group, there are groups. And if you really think about it, really, that's the world's view. I mean, Islam teaches that children are born uh, without sin. Um, but most of the world ascribes to that. They believe in the basic goodness of man. That's why the works can obtain for you this justification before God in their eyes. The heretic English monk Pelagius, he believed that and taught it. Um, he, he didn't think we were tainted with original sin from Adam, that all we had to do was follow the good works of Christ rather than the bad works of Adam. He felt that God had given us the power uh, to overcome sin in our own obedient works rather than having to rely upon uh, the finished work of Christ at the cross. Obviously, that's heresy. Pelagius went to Rome and he got in a fight, a famous fight with Augustine, and I think Augustine had a much more moderate position initially, but as he spent this time fighting with Pelagius back and forth about this heresy, um, it became so polarizing in the fight that Augustine finally ar arrived at the extreme conclusion that man's depravity was so complete um, that God had to save the man before he could get saved. You know, Augustine and Calvin after him declared that man is so depraved that it isn't even possible for him to take any part in accepting the gift of salvation. <laughs> Yet one of the defining attributes as a gift is that it must be received. Otherwise, it's not a gift, it's compulsion. You know, the ironic uh, result of each of their positions, Pelagius and uh, Augustine, and even down to today, their proxies, the Armenians and the, the Calvinists, both positions, if you take it to its logical conclusion, reject the necessity of repentance. The Pelagian doesn't need God's intervention by grace, whereas the Calvinist can't choose to change or turn to God. Pelagian teaches that we earn our salvation by good works. Calvinism teaches God has chosen those who will be saved and those who will be damned. No repentance is needed in the one camp and no personal repentance is possible in the other. We have to reject both of those. And look, there's, there's good godly men who I love in both of those camps. But we're looking for what does the truth of Scripture say? Repentance is required, and yet neither of those camps allow for repentance. <laughs> Let's get back to the little bundles of joy. Um, those of us who have children know the truth. Those little bundles of joy are actually little monsters, aren't they? We love them, but they're little monsters. It seems her sole purpose in life is to keep us from sleeping and eating, talking with anyone else, uh, accomplishing the, the many needful daily tasks, relaxing, uh, in general, doing anything that isn't focused specifically on them. It's all about them. Well, I know that's not completely true, but sometimes it seems that way. So what do we do? You know, from the time they're born, our focus is on meeting their immediate needs. But at the same time, what are we doing? We're trying to influence their behavior towards something that's a little more peaceful and productive in the house. We're looking for continuous improvement. 
And indeed, that's what we do throughout the human existence. That's why we have the technology and the productivity that we have today. Continuous improvement. And what's necessary for that? I'd say, really making this simple, at least four things. Acquisition of knowledge, recognition of need for improvement, desire for improvement, and then a change of will to accomplish what needs to be improved. And, And those are great things to embrace and use. That's the daily mechanical things we do Uh, to be effective. And that's really a picture of what repentance is. If we repent moment by moment during the day on earthly matters, how much less should we do that for eternal matters? Well, in the uh, just a short little bit of time we have left, let's talk about some of the errors. And there's, there's many of them. I'm just kind of reduced it to three I'll really basically talk about here. Two of these, I believe, are extremely dangerous, and the other is, at at best, just unwise. The first error is that some believe that repentance is purely an intellectual assent. That is just agreeing. Again, that goes back to that, I've sinned, or I'm wrong. I admit my guilt. Unfortunately, of course, true repentance goes well beyond that. As we said, uh, metanoia does involve a change of mind. There needs to be a change of mind change of thought and a change of emotion, change of the heart, recognizing something's wrong. The danger of the teaching um, that it's just an intellectual assent, you know, agreement with it, um, is that that's all you end up with, just an admission of guilt with no desire to change. The second error is to make repentance a work that has to be done before coming to Christ. At an extreme, it was the Puritans. And their error was known as preparationism teaching you cannot come to Christ exactly as you are, but a work of preparation needs to be done in you, making your heart repentant. Danger of that position, of course, is that it ends up denying grace. John Newton said, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come. And actually, Scripture, of course, says we can't come. And that's where, in part, the Calvinists drive part of their position. We're dead in our sins, but God has given us a conscience even the most vile and guilty sinner who never comes to the Lord does have an act. That's one of the best gifts that God has given us. If we, do, if we do all we can to keep it alive and active and painful to us, it guides us. And we can only receive the power to overcome sin once we've had that first repentance bringing us to salvation, uh, to union with God, baptized into the body of Christ, which was purchased by the blood of Christ. And again, all these attributes we've been talking about repentance need to be in place for that to happen. Then we receive the, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. A third error is, uh, is this. They say that any lack or lack of continuance of good works is proof there was no true repentance. And look, works are a good indicator of someone's spiritual health and evil works or no work would certainly should cause us to call into question their, um, the profession they might have made. But we're not allowed to condemn them for their works. We're to test their fruit if they're teachers. You know, we, we, we might and should restrict, restrict fellowship or teaching duties if someone is showing evil works. Teaching that proof of salvation is evidenced in good works and godly living is 
again, this really goes back to the Calvinist position. They call it experimental predestinarianism. The only test to show if you're one of the elect is whether you have the works. Now again, as we've portrayed here, those works should be there. As John the Baptist said, show forth the fruit in keeping with repentance. But that doesn't become our yardstick to measure it. It's one of the things we look at and make an evaluation of how we're going to deal with somebody, how we're going to minister to them, how we're going to exhort or even accuse a brother or sister. We accuse them of the action. But as Matthew 7 says, we are not, that misquoted verse, judge not that you be not judged. It's really is condemn not that you be not condemned. The problem with that position is that it effectively denies God's promise of security to a true believer, robs him of the peace that those promises give. And look, if, if we're honest, none of us can ever measure up. No matter how good our works are, we still live in these bodies of death, as, as Paul uh, put it. And so for those believers who think that their works are the evidence of whether they're saved or not, when they stumble and fall and they're confronted with that, they fall into despair. That's one of the dirty secrets of, again, of the Calvinistic line of thought is many of those who are Calvinists are, um, suffer from extreme depression because they believe what God says and yet they measure themselves by their own works or their, their, um, the degree of sin that's in their life. And every time they fall, they fear, I'm not one of the elect. I said that, that third one, works are important. Please don't... Please don't mishear me on that. But we don't approve or condemn somebody in their position in Christ. We approve or rebuke them on their, their fellowship with God and their obedience in their walk. And that's what we want. We want brothers and sisters who can come up to us and point out when we're wrong. Well, like I said, if we agree that the repentance can be summed up in uh, having a godly hatred of sin... Um, and we know that even us believers sin, so repentance is for unbelievers and believers. But for us believers, it's, 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 being, it's being made ready to serve and glorify the living God. It's not for eternal life. We've got eternal life. Once you got it, you can't get any more of it. It's, it's by definition, it's eternal. But of the works for those who are unsaved, you don't have the currency of heaven, and whatever reward you might think you get for your good works, you only get it down here because you'll have no currency to spend in heaven because you won't be there. And that's the only place eternal currency has any value. Once you're in Christ, now your good works accrue for you rewards in heaven. That's the difference between justification and rewards. Believers are going to be judged at the bema seat of Christ, not for their sins, but for their works. So again, I'd, I'd exhort anybody, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, it's not safe to die. Let's talk before you leave. You don't twist anybody's arm, but you can have this repentance and then be prepared. There's our, our brother shared last week in Hebrews at the worship service, talk about that the blood of bulls and goats never put away any sin, but it did clean a conscience. And in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, we're told, for at the blood of Goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve 
the living God. And for all believers, that ought to be our, our goal. Continual improvement. From the word of God, we should gather knowledge. That should give us God's standard against which we measure ourselves. And to help us recognize we have a need for that improvement. Working of the Holy Spirit will bring us conviction. And then he'll also give us a strength to overcome it for a strengthening of our will to be obedient. Trusting in Christ fully for salvation and then trusting God's word for instruction and correction, reproof, education. That we might cling to those doctrines and remain in truth as we walk. As I said, the, the most profitable place for us to be is always right in the middle of the will of God, turning neither to the right or left. That's the best possible outcome for our life. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to drift. And that's when repentance comes into play. That there's an action. There's an accusation, which comes from the Holy Spirit. There's conviction, which builds in our heart. There's a repentance, this sorrowness that comes from it, and a desire to change and walk truly before the Lord. That's true repentance, whether it's somebody coming to their saving knowledge of the Savior, or whether it's a longtime believer, returning to the joy of the salvation of the Lord, as David prayed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth and for your promise that you never will go back on your promise. What a glorious thing it is for us that we receive the truth and know that we can depend upon it moment by moment. We pray that you would touch our hearts continually with this thought, that there would be the accusation, um, a gift from you to us of a strong conscience that would continually allow us to measure ourselves according to your word, uh, that we would turn seeking to be restored to the, the joy of your salvation, uh, the peace and joy of the Spirit uh, dwelling in a clean vessel which is fit for service for you, that we might serve you, the living God. What manner of love is this you've bestowed upon us that we should become your children? Help us to be obedient children, always bringing glory to your name and to that of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we commit all things and ask all things. Amen.